Hello, I'm Rhiannon. You're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show, part six of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. I really believe there's a birth certificate. Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? And you know what? I wish he would, because I think it's a terrible pal that's hanging over him. Conspiracy theories have been circulating the social and political landscape for centuries. However, in recent years, we are seeing the phenomenon enter the mainstream more and more. Though some conspiracy theories are harmless, others can have drastic consequences. We have seen this play out in recent years, from the QAnon conspiracy theory which prompted the storming of the US Capitol, and even ones that have arisen during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's just part of interacting with other people, especially in a context where you're dealing with political power and not having absolute perfect knowledge of what's going on. Today's guest is Jesse Walker. Jesse is not only a writer and the book's editor of Reason magazine, he's also written several books, his most recent being The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. We chat about the history of conspiracy theories around the world and in the United States, why people continue to reach for conspiracy theories, and how conspiracy theories are eroding democratic institutions and processes more broadly. Jesse, welcome to the Global Questions podcast. We're super excited to have you join us today. Glad to be here. To kick us off, are you able to give us a bit of a brief overview of who you are, your professional and academic career, and how you've become engaged in the area of conspiracy theories? Right. So my name's Jesse Walker. I work for a magazine called Reason, where I edit the book review section and write articles, edit other stuff as needed. And I've written for a bunch of other places over the years as well. And I have two books to my name. Uh, The first one was published by New York University Press in 2001. And it's a history of uh, sort of the margins of American radio. And then the second book, the one we'll be talking about today, is The United States of Paranoia, came out in 2013, and it's a history of American conspiracy thinking and just sort of looking at American history through the prism of the things people have been afraid of. And as far as how I wound up writing about that, I guess it's kind of serendipitous. I I mean, I'm a journalist primarily, and I did a lot of stories that ultimately wound up feeding into the book. The oldest reporting of mine in the book is from an article I wrote in like 95 or 96, which was about sort of intersection between the militia, uh, anti-government subculture in America and the black militant subculture and relationship between the two. And I found, you know, I still use some quotes um, from interviews I did from that when I wrote the book a couple decades later. There comes a point when you realize that you haven't just been writing a bunch of different articles. There's something larger that you can pull together from them. And fortunately, I was able to convince a publisher that this was true as well. So we've seen recently the term conspiracy kind of rise in popularity in the mainstream media, especially when we look at the US and US politics. But conspiracy theories have been around for a long time now. Are you able to give us a bit of historical context on the idea of conspiracy theories and political paranoia? Yeah, I mean, they're they're constant. I mean, well, I can say definitively they've always been a part of American politics, but I can say pretty confidently they've always been a part of politics, period, because it's just part of 
interacting with other people in a social context, but especially in a context where you're dealing with political power and not having absolute perfect knowledge of what's going on among the folks you're interacting with, even under the most innocuous circumstances, you're going to have suspicions and speculations. And then, of course, that's without even getting into the ways people can speculate beyond what's plausible. It's, I mean, the some of the earliest conspiracy theories I write about in my book were uh, stories that the settlers in America, before it was the United States, were telling about the American Indians. And it's interesting how they had both um, what you might call normal conspiracy theorizing about maybe somebody is plotting to attack or maybe uh, these two indigenous nations are aligned or maybe this indigenous nation is aligned with this other group of settlers from another country. But at the same time, you had the more far out stuff. In, in one case, the idea that Satan, having been defeated by the spread of Christianity in Europe, came to the Americas and brought the unconverted pagans with him, and that the Indians were these pagans who had fled Europe and followed Satan. Satan was the manipulator behind Indian attacks and so on. In addition to being kind of large-scale and apocalyptic and to our eyes absurd, this story kind of speaks to how much religious thinking can flow into conspiracy thinking. When it comes to sort of the big conspiracy theories, you know, the grand cabals manipulating things, stuff that goes beyond just these two politicians are in cahoots somewhere, that stems from a lot of the same place that religious thinking and religious apocalyptic thinking comes from. A lot of conspiracy theories are basically secularized stories about God and the devil. So that was my very long answer. But the short answer is it's kind of basic to human society. I, even if we somehow got down to one human being, that person would probably be imagining people rustling around in the shadows. What are some examples of prominent and classic conspiracy theories? And do they have a big effect on society? Well, they've certainly had a big effect. I mean, pretty much every major event in American history has sparked conspiracy theories for understandable reasons. People are trying to make sense of what happened. Certainly, um, the lead up to both the American Revolution and the American Civil War were marked by some really intense conspiracy theories on both sides. The lead up to the American Revolution, you had you know many of the founding fathers speculating in letters to one another about how the English were plotting to take away their liberties and reduce them to the status of slaves. A lot of this actually worked its way into the Declaration of Independence, which you know, claims directly that there's a design. And conversely, there was a lot of speculation on the uh, English side that the French were out there trying to spark revolution among the settlers. I wouldn't say that the American Revolution were each caused by the conspiracy theories, but they happened the way they did, in large part because of a lot of these stories. Was your question more about the deep past or contemporary America? Well, both. A lot of what people understand with conspiracy theories of like QAnon and things like that. So it's interesting to get that historical perspective as well. But yeah, are there any classic ones that just jump out to you having researched it for so long? I mean, some of the more famous ones would be fear of Freemasons. There was a political party, the Anti-Masonic Party, its glory days were in the 1830s, which, you know, elected several people to office. There was resentment of Masons, but because Andrew Jackson, who was president, was a Freemason, a lot of people who are just more anti-Andrew Jackson were trying to ride this. But many people took it sincerely. And certainly one former president, John Quincy Adams, in the 1832 election, invoked this idea that who won the election was less important than whether they would do something to defeat the Masonic power. Also anti-Catholic conspiracy theories have been a big part of 
Not so much 20th and 21st century America, but really intense before then. I mean, uh, fueling riots and things like that. There again was a third party. It was officially the American party. They were nicknamed the Know-Nothings, which was not done as a put-down. It was actually the idea was that they were secretive and they asked people about their meetings. They would say, I know nothing. Um, but And uh, they were very much an anti-immigrant political party, but that was very much tied up with a fear of Catholics, a fear that immigrants from places like Ireland might be pawns of the Pope. And an interesting thing about the anti-Catholic conspiracy theories is that when people then started having conspiracy theories about other religious groups, Mormons would be a big example. Clearly, they just kind of adapted the anti-Catholic conspiracy theory. And <laughs> they mix in other stuff that has to do with you know people's suspicions about Mormons and their many wives. But that's one of the things that happens with all these conspiracy theories is they're infinitely adaptable. There were conspiracy theories told before the Civil War about alleged plots behind slave revolts, very similar to the stories told a century later about the plots supposedly behind the race riots in the 1960s. And then more recently, um, other riots we've seen in the last decade have sounded a lot like those stories from the 60s. So a lot of these stories keep recurring, like they've sort of filed off some of the names and put someone else in. Even QAnon, which seems so distinctively weird, and is very weird. It draws on stories that have been going around for decades, claiming that cabals of pedophiles are secretly running the country or trying to take it over. I mean, I've seen uh, stuff written in the 90s, stuff written in the 80s. It sounds very much like QAnon. And in some cases, you know, people doing QAnon are digging up these old tracts and working in stuff directly from it. They say, ah, this person was on the trail of what was happening. With QAnon, because it's a sort of participatory subculture, anybody can jump in and add something, you know, their own spin to the speculations. And in some cases, you know, they're just trolls yanking on people's chains. There is some stuff that's unique. One of the big QAnon ideas was the idea that Donald Trump and uh, Mr. Mueller, who was investigating Donald Trump, were secretly working together to fight the child abuse cabal, and that the whole investigation of Trump was a uh, ruse. And I thought, well, that's unique to QAnon. And then I found out that had been circulating earlier in the year online in one of these subcultures that fed into QAnon. There is very little in Q QAnon that is completely original. Super interesting. You say that conspiracy theories are infinitely adaptable. Why do you think people keep coming back to them? Well, I think that we are a storytelling, pattern-recognizing creature. I mean, we have to be. We have to create narratives to make sense of the world around us. We're also a creature that has a lot to be afraid of. There are legitimate reasons to fear. So if you combine our capacity for finding patterns with our capacity for feeling fear, you're guaranteed to have people finding fearful patterns. And when you add in the fact that sometimes conspiracies are real, I mean, the word is in the language for a reason. Um, <laughs> sometimes somebody does conspire with someone else. Um, and people will have the memory of you know seeing like the NSA surveillance exposed some years ago or or when I was a kid, you know, some of the post Watergate investigations that revealed things that the CIA and the FBI and the IRS and the NSA were up to in the United States that, you know, broke the law. It's thinkable, right? You can fear a conspiracy and eventually some sort of conspiracy might show up in the newspapers. People are naturally gonna keep, you know, reaching for them. And and on top of that, we're in a culture conspiracies figure in movies, TV shows, novels, games. When we arrange things into a familiar pattern, a lot of the familiar patterns that our minds go to are stuff we've seen you know, on TV or at the movie theater. 
And in fact, there was sort of an interesting feedback loop in the 1970s because of Watergate and those investigations I mentioned that it expanded the willingness of Hollywood to have those kinds of stories in the movies they made. It became a lot more possible to have a conspiracy movie where the U.S. government or a big corporation in bed with the government was the villain. And then that in turn, people having seen these films, and there was this great boom of, you know, often very entertaining conspiracy movies in the 70s, helped people organize their thoughts about what they saw in the news. So it zigzags back and forth between um, pop culture and the news columns and what people saw on the screen opened their minds to what they were willing to imagine and then vice versa. So you touched on kind of the media and the social landscape aspect of conspiracy theories. Have you seen since the globalization of the internet, this has proliferated conspiracy theories? I think that the internet has not made conspiracy thinking more common. What it has done, it has sped up production, circulation, and disposal of conspiracy theories. More people can produce them quickly. Now, 24 hours a day, someone can be speculating online and also be debunked more quickly. People often leave that out when they imagine what the internet's doing. They forget that it is so much easier to sort of quickly Google something now and some people are just going to read it with their confirmation bias and believe it, but other people will actually go to Snopes.com or one of the other websites and see if uh, what they're reading in their Facebook feed is true. But one other thing the internet has done is it's let us see the conversations that are happening elsewhere that would otherwise be invisible to us. You would not have known that conversation was happening before, but now you see it and you think, oh my goodness, the world's going crazy. People believe this now. Well, people believed it before, but now you're able to listen in a bit. This has been intensifying ever since like the internet started really taking off in the 1990s, like when the World Wide Web became popular and you started having these conspiracy forums where, you know, hippies, black nationalists, UFO buffs, militiamen might all be participating and sharing their conspiracy views and not cohering on a single worldview, but reading other people's stories and incorporating bits of it into their conspiracy stories. There's always been a degree of fluidity, but the internet has, I think, intensified that. Mm, absolutely. So conspiracy theories, fake news, a lot of misinformation that we're seeing nowadays are increasingly becoming part of our political dialogue and social landscape. Do you think that this poses a threat to our democracies? Obviously, I don't think it's a novel threat because it's been around a long time and a lot of it is ultimately harmless. It is definitely the case that groups that are up to no good have their own conspiracy theories too. And this is especially true of any kind of scapegoat story. I mean, anything that takes a particular, you know, ethnic group or religious group or just any subculture and tries to make a social scapegoat out of them, that is bad. And it frequently has conspiracy theories as a part of it. I don't know that the conspiracy theories are what fuels it, but it inevitably becomes part of what's going on. It can help spread those ideas. And that can be bad for, obviously, for those peoples and those groups. So that, that can be dangerous, but it, that's a consistent threat. I mean, you know, demagogues have always used this kind of thing. And, and the thing is that every time you have one group coming up with conspiracy theories about another, it feels like on the other side, there will be conspiracy stories, too. It's never like it's a you can say one side is being the good guys, but the good guys are going to have their conspiracy theories about the bad guys. 
And there's the famous Richard Hofstetter essay on the paranoid style in American politics, where he uh, talks about like, a number of episodes in U.S. history. And what he doesn't note is that in every single case, or almost every case, at least, you can do this. Like He talks about the populist party at the end of the 19th century having conspiracy theories about Eastern elites and financiers, which is definitely the case. But it's also true that people in those Eastern elites were full of conspiracy theories about the populist party or even ideas that foreign manipulators were behind them. And I, I guess what I'm ultimately saying is it is so much just a constant in politics that, yeah, it shows up in the kind of unpleasant forces that you're talking about, but shows up in tons of others too. The conspiracism is, is going to keep popping up on both sides. Do you love global questions? We are a new up-and-coming podcast that is run by young people for young people. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot, and it helps us gain the reach that we deserve. I suppose a prominent example when we think of conspiracy theories and democratic leaders is Donald Trump. How do you think that he used conspiracy theories? How did that relationship play out? What was striking about Donald Trump wasn't that he was prone to conspiracy theories. It's that he was so shameless about it. For those who don't remember this, because there have been so many stories over the last few years, when he was running against Ted Cruz in the Republican primaries in 2016, he sort of invoked this idea that maybe Ted Cruz's father was mixed up with the Kennedy assassination. And his source turned out to be the National Enquirer, which it's a tabloid in the United States that's mostly famous for having incredibly dubious celebrity stories and things like that. Most presidential candidates are not going to point to the National Enquirer, and most of them aren't going to be the ones who say that themselves. They'll, if they want to have that story out there, they want a few layers of plausible deniability. And he was also utterly shameless about dropping that as soon as Ted Cruz was willing to endorse Donald Trump for president. Now, obviously, the big uh, conspiracy theory people associate with him these days is the idea that the election was stolen. And to the extent that there's a, a threat there, it's because you know people are trying to... Um, and put people in place who, who might be more willing in future elections to go along with a, a push like the one he did at the end of last year, beginning of this year. In a lot of American elections over the last century, the course of this century, there have been a lot of people on the losing side who were convinced that it was stolen. But it kind of intensified. I mean, what you had in 2000, I mean, the Gore versus Bush election, which no matter who won that you know, there's going to be resentful people on the other side. That was uh, inevitable. And then it kind of receded a bit. Like there were a lot of conspiracy theories in 2004, but they weren't embraced on a high level because it wasn't close enough. In 2008 with Obama, there were some stories being told about ACORN, and that's probably not well known in Australia, but like community action groups, you know, maybe stuffing ballot boxes. But more frequently, the idea was that Barack Obama was just not eligible to be president because he was secretly born in another country and that this had been covered up. So it was a challenge to his legitimacy, but it didn't hinge so much on the election itself. In 2016, of course, there were all these stories that Russia had stolen the election, which really, I think, was wish-casting by Democrats who didn't want to accept the mistakes they had made that had led to losing like someone like Donald Trump. And so a lot of weight was put on things like Russia-sponsored Facebook ads, which I can't imagine them swinging a single vote. But, you know, this became much more intense than anything since 2000, and on much less basis than people talked about in 2000. And then in 2020, of course, it intensified even more to the point where you had a riot at the U.S. Capitol. 
I've seen people try to equate the aftermath of 2016 and the aftermath of 2020, and I don't think they're equivalent. I think 2020 sort of builds on 2016 in the same way 2016 built on some of the other cycles. I can certainly understand why people are scared about what might the next step in this could be. But you can also roll back like you did from 2000 to 2004. None of this is inevitable. I mean, people conspiracy theorizing is inevitable, but people you know, rioting at the U.S. Capitol because they believe in a conspiracy theory is not inevitable at all. Kind of switching from the talk about democracy, do you think that conspiracy theories and authoritarianism can be linked? So, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I don't have the studies in front of me, so I can't give you the citations. But I remember there was one psychological study which purported to find a relationship between conspiracy thinking and authoritarian politics. And there was another one that purported to find a um, link between conspiracy thinking and anti-authoritarian, you know, small d democratic politics. It was not a mystery to me how they came to these opposite conclusions, because I looked at what conspiracy theories they were asking about to see if people were prone to conspiracy thinking. Well, what do you know? The one where they asked a bunch of stuff about like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and stuff like that, these people tended to be prone to authoritarian um, you know, politics. The one where they asked a bunch of stuff that had to do with, you know, the government and, and corporations being oppressive towards people was, you know, again, everybody is capable of thinking in conspiratorial terms. It's certainly not unique to authoritarians, and it's not unique to anti-authoritarians. And a lot of these psychological studies which try to find a um, conspiracy personality, they often don't think about the ways that the group of conspiracy theories that they're thinking about might be measuring something a little bit different than they thought. So yeah, it can absolutely be used by authoritarians. I mean, every major authoritarian leader of the last century, Hitler and Stalin, both very prone to conspiracy thinking. And some people not as bad as Hitler or Stalin, but very bad, that same can be said about. But pretty much every liberation movement you can think of, the Black liberation movement in the United States, lots of conspiracy theories. And, and you can do that among all sorts of other axes. And sometimes that leads to somewhat reasonable suspicion. Sometimes it leads to far out stuff that doesn't withstand close scrutiny. But again, it, it just crosses into all different parts of society. I suppose that brings me to my last question. Given this, this enduring political paranoia, do you think that we can begin to counter the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories? Or do you think that they will be enduring for all time. I mean, conspiracy thinking will be enduring for all time, but you can certainly counteract particular stories. You can work out ways to uh, spread debunkings when the story is untrue, you know, help people understand the basics of media literacy and don't believe the first story you read on the subject or the story that tickles your fear bone just the way that, that you're used to being tickled, but look for what the evidence is and what other people are saying. It, None of this is perfect. There's always going to be people who believe things. You know, we talk about people having confirmation bias for various reasons because of um, their uh, political inclinations, but most people are not swimming in politics. That's just not the way they organize their lives. And while there are drawbacks to people being withdrawn from political life, one good thing about it is it means they're less likely to get drawn into this kind of internecine hatred and so on. And can be sort of, re you say, well, that story that you sent me, here are some reasons not to believe it. Most people will listen to you. A lot of people won't. 
I can't tell if this is an optimistic answer or a pessimistic answer. I guess it's sort of fatalistic. But yeah, you can combat particular stories. Don't expect misinformation itself to disappear. But then again, to the extent that we have freedom and self-government in the world, it has coexisted all along with conspiracy thinking because it has to. It's just one of the uh, many aspects of human nature that you know we have to build our, uh, our institutions around and just figure out how we're going to handle them. Just the same way you have to figure out how are you going to handle greed and then every other kind of uh, emotion that at times leads to problems and other times sometimes gets channeled in socially beneficial ways. But did that sound like a positive or a negative reply to you? <laughs> I, a bit of both, I think. I think there's yeah, a few things to take away, but yeah, they do seem like an enduring concept, that's for sure. Look, that's all we have time for today, Jesse. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You've written a couple of books, The United States of Paranoia. Aside from this, if our listeners do want to know more about you, read more of your work or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, if you go to reason.com, which that's the magazine I work for, and there's a page with all my articles and with my contact info. And I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is not Jesse Walker, and I will never get the blue check confirmation because it wouldn't be clear if they were confirming that I am or am not Jesse Walker. Um, and between those, uh, people should be able to track me down. Amazing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. That's all for this week's in-depth episode and for the year for Global Questions as we take a short break over Christmas and New Year's. We have loved this season so far, so don't worry, we'll be back in your ears next year with more exciting and interesting interviews on the decline in democracy, as well as our fortnightly wrap-up episodes touching on global news from around the world and our special Trailblazer episodes. So stay tuned for updates on our socials for when we'll be back in 2022 and we'll see you guys next year. Bye.